Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Right now, I would have probably made a joke about the video. We've talked about how some of us definitely do not like look like TV personalities on screen. Uh, but the video is uh, fantastic, and I think we will be able to show it in uh, just a little bit. Um, as Kevin mentioned, we are in the fourth and final week of a series entitled Imago Dei, or the Image of God. And uh, the intent is to talk about how we as a community are addressing the topic of sexuality in the kingdom of God. And as I have been thinking about this series over the last week or so, um, I've just reflected on what for me has been about a four and a half year, almost five year journey. A journey filled with prayer and fasting, intense study, communal discernment, and crazy amounts of grace. And as I have been uh, reflecting on it, I kept thinking of this one particular um, quote. And the reason I want to share the quote is because I think some would say, why, why would we even uh, talk about this theological topic? Why even discuss it? I mean, much of the church today, uh, locally and translocally, tries to ignore the subject, tries not to talk about it, tries to kind of push it under the rug or put it into the background, and yet we've chosen to bring it to the forefront. And I think here's a reason why. We exist for Jesus, all right? This, this quote struck me so much this week. We exist for Jesus and our motivation for deepening our understanding of the truth He has revealed must terminate in Jesus and not lesser ends. Let me say it again because I think it is profound. We exist for Jesus and our motivation for deepening our understanding of the truth He has revealed must terminate in Jesus and not lesser ends. The discipline of theology should be practiced so that Christ would be treasured more completely, loved more extravagantly, and obeyed more faithfully. That is why we're addressing the topic. That is why we're talking about sexuality. We want Christ to be treasured more completely, loved more extravagantly, and obeyed more faithfully. So this uh, last week, I talked about what that looks like in terms of our conclusion that the Spirit of God is inviting us to have everyone live in full participation within the church, especially our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And as someone who uh, has the privilege of standing up front, I feel like there are times I have a different view of the church community than others because of the fact that I get to stand here and look and experience your faces and what is going on uh, with what you're hearing. And uh, every week, I hope you know this, that it is my uh, responsibility and the way I come to this community is to offer the best of what I have in terms of what I believe God is saying in my spirit, what he's challenging me with, but also I think what the spirit is saying to the elders and to the community at large. As I interact with you, as we have coffee and lunch, as we spend time together, 
So we're in small groups together. It is, what I'm trying to do is kind of download what I'm sensing the Spirit is saying to us as a community. And uh, anytime I do that, it comes with uncertainty. Anytime I get up, regardless of the passage, it comes with a bit of uncertainty. And uh, you can imagine, I would assume, that if uh, it is something I've been wrestling with for four and a half years, it might come with even a little bit more uncertainty. Um, And so I just want to say that last week, again, I mentioned this at the start, I have been so encouraged by the way we have stepped into this conversation as a community. The fact that we are willing to be in group together and talk about it, to wrestle with it, uh, in many ways it has challenged us to dig deeper into the scriptures. It's given us a renewed passion to learn, to ask questions with curiosity. Those are all things that we deeply value here at New Community. And I have seen all of that evidenced so clearly over this month. So again, I applaud you. I uh, am so encouraged that we would be willing to enter into this conversation. I also want you to know that I have been absolutely blown away by the response of this series outside of our community, both in and outside of our community. Um, I wish I could give you all of the stories, but I'll just share a few of them with you. Uh, Just the other day, I got a call from Denver and um, short conversation. And it was just, hey, I've been listening every week and I've been so encouraged. It has given me incredible opportunities to speak with people in the church that I'm a part of. And uh, man, I'm so thankful that New Community would talk about this topic. I had an email from Arizona. The email at the very start just said this, looking forward to Mondays. And the email starts off by saying, for the last month, I've looked forward to every Monday because I know the next podcast would be up and I could follow along with what we're discussing as a community. And they went on to say that this has been so powerful for them in their relationship uh, with their sister and um, that it's been life-changing for her as she's been able to pass that podcast on uh, to her sister who's um, been in a gay relationship for a really long time. And now she's having a different type of dialogue with her sister than she ever had before. I've gotten texts from Portland. I've gotten uh, texts from uh, the East Coast, all communicating again that, man, This has been profound. This has been so encouraging and challenging. Uh, I've heard stories from small group leaders. I even heard a story this morning of someone in our community just saying that this has opened new doors for them and their family and in terms of these types of conversations. Um, I have gotten hugs from multiple people who have not yet come out publicly that have said this has been so profound for them personally. I've had people tell me that they have longed to hear a church talk about this for 20 years and have waited for this moment and it has been filled with joy and it's been filled with like scales being like ripped off of their heart in places where there had been hurt. I've spoken with leaders in our city who are wanting to grab coffee and talk more about how Newcom can be an extension of love and grace to people in this this city more specifically. 
So over and over, what I'm hearing is these uh, so encouraging and profound, what I would think are movements of the Spirit. That God continues to show up and uh, is continuing to move us forward as a community. And uh, I want to just begin our time this morning uh, praying and just thanking God for what has been happening and asking that God would continue to move in our midst in these same ways. Let's pray. God, we just want to echo again the quote that I read earlier, that we want Jesus Christ to be loved more fully and obeyed more faithfully. And we want to lean into these conversations that are challenging for the church because we believe that in wrestling with you and wrestling with the Spirit and wrestling with the text that points us to you, that in all those things like Jacob, we might wrestle and walk away with a limp, that we might be changed, that we might be different, uh, that we might continue to grow and be faithful to follow you. And so God, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. Pray that I would get out of the way and allow your word to just be clear. Uh, I pray that you might um, just continue to move in the way that only you can among us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Romans chapter 14. Now, when I started this series, I mentioned that this particular week we would get into this particular passage because I think the 14th chapter of the book of Romans is a pretty intriguing piece of literature. It is, uh, it's profound, but it is also uh, quite uh, challenging for us. Because uh, what Paul does is he seeks to address what it looks like to live in freedom in Christ among other Christians. And I think this is so important because generally we have a fascinating habit as Christians or as humans of making our theology or our ethics the standard then for all other believers. What it is that I believe should become standard for everyone, Right. It's the way we often live or live out our faith. And so what Paul does in Romans 14 is he walks us through a series of principles. And uh, we handed out a sheet a couple weeks ago. It's also available online. That sheet lists all of the principles in Romans 14. I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'm just going to cover uh, a few this morning that I think are helpful for our particular conversation and what I want to do is attempt to answer what Paul's attempting to answer. He says this, or this is what I would say his question is, how do we, as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, relate and respond to each other in regard to matters of differing conviction? That is what I think he's attempting to address. And this morning, I just want to echo some of the principles that he covers in the passage. The first one is this, we're to accept one another. In Romans 14, one, it says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, or in the NIV, accept him who is weak in the faith. The text tells us that we're supposed to welcome or accept. And different versions have different words, receive, accept, or welcome. But the idea is the same, that we are to approach one another with this level of acceptance. 
But what really is acceptance? I want to give you a couple things that I believe that it is. First, I think acceptance means a recognition. And what we're recognizing is that each and every one of us are a part of the body of Christ. What's so easy to happen within the church among Christians is that we create these dividing lines that say, you are a part of the body of Christ, but this person clearly couldn't be, right? And we define what the body of Christ looks like based on our own particular perspective. And what Paul is asking us to do is accept brothers and sisters, regardless of where you differ in opinion, regardless of how you feel about the other, that we are to understand that we are all in the family of God. And Paul reminds us of this just a few chapters earlier. In Romans 12, he says this. It'll be on the screen. As, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What Paul is getting at is that we are all a part of the family of God. Hellerman makes this statement. He, being Jesus, chose family as a defining metaphor to describe his followers. No image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family. And no image offers as much promise as family for recapturing the relational integrity of first century Christianity for our churches today. What Hellerman is saying is that there is this profound metaphor in the scriptures called family. And all of us must recognize, accept the reality that we are family together. Paul makes this point throughout all of his writings in the New Testament. If you look at the screen, he uses the words brothers and sisters 139 times, father 63 times, meaning we all have the same father. We are all heirs of his inheritance and that occurs another 19 times. We're defined as sons, meaning we have the birthright another 17 times, and we're defined as children another 39 times. If Paul was simply making a point, it would be pretty easy to figure out, and that point is that you belong and that we belong to one another, that we are all a part of the family of God. I think the second thing we're to accept or to welcome when we look at Romans 14.1, is that there's a certain way we're to receive one another. And so Paul goes into the next few verses and talks about what that looks like. He says this, The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. The word look down here is really a word that means to push him out. What Paul is calling is those that have freedom to resist pushing out your family member. If you feel like you have freedom in this issue or another issue, do not push out your family member. Do not hold them in contempt. Do not look down on them. Do not push them out. Paul then goes to the opposite side of the issue and says, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Those who do not have the freedom regarding this conversation must not look down on those who do have the freedom. They must not judge. The word here for condemn means to sit in judgment. And why are we not to sit in judgment of our brother and sister? The answer 
It's pretty clear, and Paul answers it this way. For God has accepted him. For God has accepted him. This part of the verse is supposed to be a reminder that God has received this person. This person is received into the bond of love and fellowship with God. And if we are the ones sitting in judgment on our brother or sister, we're in essence taking the place of God. Paul seems to push this idea even further when he gets into Romans chapter 15. He says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, again, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why do we receive or accept one another? Because it leads to the glory of God. The second idea, we are to assume spirit-filled motives. When you sit next to your brother or sister, the call of this particular principle is to assume their well-intentioned motives. The text says this, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The reason why neither party should judge the other party because both are aiming at the same target. Both are seeking to serve and glorify God. Everyone in the room and everyone outside this community that is wrestling with this topic are all, we have to assume, all seeking to live into the deep conviction that they have in their heart. Paul's point is it doesn't matter if you're strong in this argument or weak in the argument, both are seeking to live into devotion to God. And what our calling should be is to give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. Since we cannot see one another's heart, we're to assume that they have spirit-filled motives. Both viewpoints, as Paul is describing, are both honoring God. Third, and final little part of Romans 14 is this. We're to acknowledge God as judge. Romans 14, 10 to 12 says this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is uh, attempting, I think, in this passage to be polite. What he's basically saying is this, stop trying to be God, right? That's basically what he's saying, like knock it off. Stop, stop trying to take the place of God. Stop trying to be the arbitrator of who's right and who's wrong. Stop playing God to each other. 
So he says, why do you pass judgment? Why do you despise? Why do you seek to divide the church in these ways? Paul reminds us that all of us will have to give an account to God. That means my actions, my beliefs, my theology, my perspective will one day come before my Father and I'll have a conversation. And he and I will hash it out because he knows my heart. He knows my motives. And the same is true for you. It's not my responsibility to judge your decision or your thought. Rather, we are to allow God to. Let God do the thing that only God can do. Now, my encouragement in this particular section would be to say this, that all of us are called to live into these principles and the rest of the principles in Romans 14. And I would love to just end the talk right here at this point and say, hey, great, fantastic. We did it. We've been discussing this. We've been wrestling as a community and we have arrived. Well done. This is amazing. Clap your hands. We are there. But the truth of the matter is, I know that just because I've been around the church for a long time, that uh, is, I ended the talk right then. What would instantly come up would be, Russ, Russ, you cannot apply Romans 14 at all to this topic of same-sex relationships. It is impossible. Romans 14 is only for debatable things, not explicitly clear things, right? So this is kind of a passage that you use if you want to listen to rock music and your parents are only into Christian music. Then you bring out Romans 14, okay? That's when you use it. Or if you want to drink and somebody else doesn't want you to drink, you go, hey, well, have you ever read Romans 14? Cheers, right? Like that's... That's how you bring up Romans 14. That's what its purpose is. It is for whether you get tattoos and all that kind of stuff, but it is not for this. <laughs> wow. Somebody must be having that conversation with their parents right now. Uh, so yeah, it's not, it's not for this. That would be the argument, okay? And I want to just suggest that here's the interesting thing about theology. Theology is pretty, uh, for me, pretty a curious study. And part of it is because I believe what we have in Christianity is what is considered a pilgrim theology. A pilgrim theology means that we have a discipline, the discipline of the study of theology, that is a metaphor, the best way to describe it would be a metaphor of journey rather than destination. Okay, we have a God continuing to move in the lives of people throughout centuries of time. And so our theology is a pilgrim theology. Luke Timothy Johnson says it this way. We must let go of the desire for theology to be a finished product of complete conceptual symmetry. If theology is in effect the attempt to understand living faith, then it must always be an unfinished process for the data continues to come in as the living God persists in working through the lives of people and being revealed in their stories. So what I thought I would do this morning is just give a few examples of what some might consider very clear teaching 
that others might consider a bit debatable. And if this quote is true, that God is really persisting in working in the lives of people and their stories, then Romans 14 might have something to say about each of these illustrations I bring up. So we'll start off with one we talked about just a few weeks ago, Sabbath. We have in the Ten Commandments a pretty clear teaching. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. He goes on to say, six days shall you labor and the seventh you shall rest. It's a pretty non-debatable issue. And yet, you have whole groups of Christians who orient their whole life around the Sabbath and set aside all of life in those moments to only worship God or to be at peace or to not be active or to not work or to cease creativity. And then you have many that say, I don't feel like I have to live that particular way, that I have a freedom, that I can choose to follow that law differently. And so what was once not debatable is now considered by many debatable. But again, you might say, Russ, this is the New Testament era. We don't live under the law anymore. This one can be clearly written off. Great. So let's fast forward a little bit into more current illustration. Let's talk about slavery for a moment. Slavery was deeply connected to religious faith, deeply connected to a clear understanding of the text. Slave owners would routinely bring their slaves together and would have a preacher open the text where they themselves would start off with morning devotions and read such passages as Ephesians 6, and Colossians 2, reminding slaves to obey their earthly masters, reminding slaves that they have responsibilities to listen to their authority, because slavery was deeply tied up in religion. In fact, I'm sure most of you know this, but the first British slave ship to reach the Americas was known as the good ship Jesus was the first one carrying all of the slaves to be sold. Only 130 to 140 years ago, Jefferson Davis, no relation, okay? Just making that clear right from the beginning. No relation. Um, he was president of the Confederate States. He was a member of the Episcopal Church. He makes this statement. Slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. My own convictions as to slavery are strong. It has its evils and abuses. We recognize the slave as God and God's book and God's laws in nature tell us to recognize him, our inferior fitted expressly for servitude. You cannot transform the slave into anything one-tenth as useful or as good as what slavery enables them to be. It is during this time that abolitionists are trying to make arguments with the same text, right? Against using the Bible to justify slavery. 
As Knoll acknowledges, the abolitionists were considered to be radical and often were considered to be infidels because how could they say God was opposed to slavery if it was so obvious in the Bible that he was not? It's a clear teaching. How could abolitionists? It's so obvious, right? What was once considered clear teaching is now considered a total rejection of the spirit of the gospel. If one were to get up and argue for the inequality of man or the necessity of slavery, it would not even be debatable. We would not even consider it for a moment. So let's go on to another. What about women? How about the posture of women in the church? Paul's pretty clear. He says this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is not just an issue of could a woman be a pastor? Could a woman be a minister of the gospel? This is an issue of could a woman open her mouth in the service? Could she pray? Could she sing? Could she worship? Could she speak? Paul seems to be really clear, right? And the church fathers seem to echo this very same teaching. It is not proper for a woman to speak in church. However admirable or holy what she says may be, merely because it comes from female lips. Chrysostom says this, but when one is required to preside over the church and be entrusted with the care of so many souls, the whole female sex must retire before the magnitude of the task. Just not quite up to snuff. Calvin goes on to say this, let the women be satisfied with her state of subjection and not take it amiss that she is made inferior to the more distinguished sex. Some of you threw up a little bit in your mouth right there. <laughs> That's okay, I get it. But here's the thing, many churches don't even consider that debatable. Many churches still go, nope, clear, done, end of story, Bible said it, and forget it, right? And yet, others would suggest Romans 14 absolutely applies to this particular topic of women in the church. Should we only allow church leadership to be for the more distinguished sex? Or should we be willing to allow our brothers and sisters to live into the freedom they have in the Spirit's conviction? You can see why these were once considered potentially issues of debate, or of no debate, and now are issues of debate. The church has a, a long storied history of these kinds of things. There was once a time where speaking in tongues or the gifts of the Spirit were not for the church today. And another group lived into the movement of the Spirit, and it was a debatable issue. We have debated divorce. I remember growing up in the church, this was the hot topic 
when I was like seven, right? Like seven to about 14. It was a period of time in which this was a major issue. And the teaching of the church was nobody can get divorced for any reason, period, except for one particular clause. And that clause was repeated sexual infidelity with no remorse. That was how it was taught in the community I grew up in. So very, very anti, which I understand, but the expression of it then within the community I grew up in was that if you were divorced for whatever reason, you were a second-class citizen within the community of God because you couldn't serve in the same way, you could never teach, you couldn't lead a group, you couldn't speak up front, you, all of it off limits. That was the church I grew up in. That was the expression of faith. It wasn't a debatable issue. And yet I think today we would wrestle with this. We would debate. We would have conversations with other churches that might see it differently. We've even debated about remarriage within the church. In Luke 16, 18, it says this, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Right, this is a debate still raging in churches today, that some in the church argue that to be remarried is to live in a perpetual state of adultery, where others claim freedom to remarry. And I would suggest that these debates continue within the church. And that maybe Romans 14 is really getting after something because we have a pilgrim theology. It is more of a journey rather than a destination. And while I would love to say for you, this is the last one. We've arrived. Congratulations. Okay? We will not debate anything in the church anymore. That part of our history is done. The truth of the matter is more topics will come, right? What do we do with our brothers and sisters who are followers of Jesus that are illegal immigrants? It will be a topic if it isn't already. What do we do about climate change? Some say it doesn't exist. Others say, remember when it snowed in September, right? <laughs> like, yeah, we have these debates. It was cold. I, that's it. I just remember it just a couple weeks ago, it feels like. Okay? Our kids, kids, kids are going to have topics that they bring up that we're going to be like, ah, oh, mind blown. What do we do now? This, this isn't the last. I can promise you that. Right? But all of it should, again, move us toward a space where we seek to understand God more clearly and follow Him more faithfully. Now, I know that some listening to the podcast will listen and say something along the lines of, Again, these movements that you've just described, these changes in the church, are the exact reason why we shouldn't change. This shows that we've continued to slip down a very steep slope and are not living into all that God would desire for us, right? And others would listen to this same exact talk and go, fantastic, that's what I've been saying all along. We keep 
moving as a pilgrim people, which almost feels like Romans 14, right? It almost feels like we're in this space where we're in dialogue and maybe that's where we're supposed to be. I want to wrap up with one final illustration. It's a debate that takes us back to the early church. It concerns a theology around the foreskin on male anatomy. I know a very wonderful topic, okay? It, it takes us back to circumcision. For those of you still like doing the math on <laughs> Yeah, circumcision. It takes us back to circumcision, all right? Uh, circumcision was a sign of the covenant, okay? Non-debatable from like, for most of time, it was a sign of the covenant. Acts 15 is a moment in time that's forever etched on the church. I'm going to show you the verses, but I would also encourage you to open your text to Acts 15. It starts off and says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, here's why this came up. All right, if you go back to Genesis, it says this. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. So the command was circumcision. It was not debatable. It was a sign of the covenant. End of story. Okay. And I love what happens next in Acts 15. It says this, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Love that. Just kind of glossed over. Okay, what that's saying is, after they heard that, they had a, a, just a crazy amount of debate, discussion, frustration, anger, tension within the church. If you think the church doesn't have tension, it always has from the very beginning, and Paul and Barnabas are in the center of it. We're having a debate. We're having discussion. We're frustrated with each other because what you're saying is everyone needs to be circumcised still. And it goes on to say, um, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And let me remind you, again, this is not a small or trivial matter to the church. This is a significant topic. So significant, you must go back in time, okay? So Moses, what we just described a minute ago, was given a command. He then called every male in the tribe of Israel to live into that command. That command and his uh, kind of redemption of the people from Egypt happened around 1447 B.C. Okay? 1447 B.C. is when Moses led the Hebrews from Egypt. Now let's fast forward. Jesus. A lot of history has happened. Jesus comes on the scene about 4 BC. Jesus then lives 33 years. He dies. 
is resurrected, then goes on to wrap up the end of the Gospels. We move into Acts. The Gospels starting to spread. We get to Acts 15. This is where we find ourselves. So from the moment of this command to Acts 15 is about 1,500 years. So 1,500 years of this is the command, follow it. This is the teaching, do it. Well, I don't know if we should. No, this is the teaching, do it. All the way until this moment, Acts 15. And the rest of the text goes on to say this. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all in the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them, or done through them among the Gentiles. I cannot help but think this passage has something to say about the very conversation we're in. A topic that the church considered to be rock solid for 1,500 years. The elders gathered, they listened to the Spirit, and they asked, should our brothers and sisters have the same type of freedom to live out their convictions within the community? And Peter's response is quite profound. I'll read it again. He says this, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I cannot help but wonder if we were, are in another moment like that in the church, that we might be in the middle of an Acts 15 moment, a moment in which we're asked to follow the Spirit into this conversation. And that's what we've been doing for this whole month, a conversation that I believe invites us into Romans 14, one where we take on a posture of acceptance, one where we assume the Spirit-filled motives of every other brother and sister in Christ, and one in which we acknowledge that we all stand before God. We are in the midst of a movement. And it's a movement born out of difference. I want to finish with this particular quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says this, It is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well and we're all standing around in a nice little circle, there is not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place 
where there is a real difference, where we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. Let me pray. God, we want the world to know, as you say in your word, by the church's unity, by the way we love one another, that all men will see that we follow you. And I pray that that would be the case, that they might look at a community that sits in difference with each other, that sits in difference with the church at large or with other churches within a city and says, man, these are moments in which it is so observable that the love of God is present and this is a sign to the world. I pray that we might continue to embody that, that we might continue to hear movement of your spirit in our midst and in our city. And we ask this for the glory of you and in the name of Jesus. Amen.